Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, today for our introduction to Scripture, we will be hearing the words from Exodus. In the book of Exodus, there is a recurring theme of the faithfulness and graciousness of God. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, is one of a series of wilderness narratives situated between Israel's departure from Egypt and its arrival at Sinai. This story is often understood as a dual commentary on human nature and divine character, with the emphasis on how God's presence is with Israel. And that presence not only comes in the form of a verbal promise, but a tangible one. Though there were signs of divine activity everywhere, Israel still had not learned a crucial lesson. Where God leads, God provides and responds graciously and faithfully, not to the people's characteristic lack of faith, but to their human need. The provision of water from the rock follows the assurance that God is indeed present with this people each step of the journey to freedom from slavery, illustrating a God that responds not only to physical need, but responds in a way that restores the community. Hear now the passage from Exodus. From the wilderness, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages. As the Lord commanded, they camped at Rahibam, and there was no water there for people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do for this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff in which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come from it so that the people might drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord God, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Here ends the reading. Healing come 
With the Academy Award show airing tonight, I've been thinking a little this week about what makes for a truly great movie. As you may know, the Academy each year awards about 34 Oscars to creatives in the film industry, actors, directors, cinematographers, makeup artists, even hairdressers and animators. And if you watch tonight's show, you'll have to sit through countless speeches from people you've never heard of, rambling on and on about movies you've never heard about, just to get to that highly anticipated moment about eight or nine hours later, when at last the most celebrated award of the evening is finally handed out, right? It is the best picture, that one great movie you probably have never seen. But what makes that movie so great? You could say it's the acting or the soundtrack, the, the directing, the, the, the visual effects, the lighting, but, but doesn't it really start with a great story? There are countless, countless storyline motifs in film that make for great movies, but one of the most common and resonant themes in movies is the one about the proverbial road trip. You think of Little Miss Sunshine or Green Book or Thelma and Louise, even Dumb and Dumber. These are all great, great road trip stories. And the road trip motif is really about characters trying to get from one place to another who along the way experience unfamiliar places and strange people and must overcome roadblocks and detours and setbacks so that they can finally arrive somewhere after having learned something that they didn't know about themselves before. And the road trip motif is the oldest story in the book, actually. It made Homer a best-selling author 3,000 years ago with the Iliad and the Odyssey. And we love road trips. We love road trip stories because we, in our own lives, are always trying to get from one place to another from here to there, from there to here, and we all know what it feels like to be far from there. And to long for home, to be adrift at sea, to be in that seemingly barren, empty space between what once was and what is yet to be. Every November, I gather the family around the TV, uh, Often, unwillingly, they gather, and we watch planes, trains, and automobiles. I think one of the greatest road trip stories ever, ever made. And poor Neil, trapped with this insufferable stranger, Del Griffith, 
the shower curtain ring guy. He's navigating through flight cancellations and train breakdowns and car fires and wrong turns and ice storms and petty burglary. He's forced to share a bed with chatty Kathy Dell, waking up with his hands between two pillows, and those aren't actually pillows. <laughs> and all the whole time just wants to get home to see his family in time for Thanksgiving. I cry every time I watch it. Why? Because I am Neil Page. <laughs> Tired, impatient, annoyed, self-absorbed, sometimes a little too frosty, and yet silently longing for friendship and love and laughter and hoping someday to be able to lighten up and let go. And isn't that really what it means to be at home in this world? Life is a road trip, and the real objective along the road trip is not arriving, but becoming. Becoming more human, more kind, more loving, more alive. And the Bible is full of road trip stories. Individuals, groups, friends, entire nations, always on the move in Scripture, going from one place to another, from old ways to new ways, from one place to this place, from the past to the future, from former things to new things. You think of Adam, uh, Abraham and Sarah trekking to Canaan, Mary and Joseph journeying to Bethlehem, Paul and Timothy traveling to Macedonia, Cleopas and some unnamed disciple on the road to Emmaus, Ruth and Naomi journeying to Moab. But the most iconic road trip in the Bible is the one the Hebrews took from Egypt to the Promised Land. It was such an eventful, formative experience, it took them 40 years just to travel really less than 400 miles. And along the way, they learn a lot about themselves and about God and what it means to be vulnerable and to trust. And especially, I think, they learn about how our own stubborn, defiant human will is often the greatest obstacle to ever finding our true home. And in today's passage, the wheels really have fallen off the bus for the Hebrews. It has been one roadblock and setback after another. It began with escaping Egypt and having Pharaoh's army hot on your trail only to come up against this great impassable sea of reeds. And as Pharaoh's army is approaching and death seems imminent, they complain to Moses, their leader, who raises his hand over the waters until somehow... The waters part just in time, and the people pass through. Problem solved. And so they journey on until they find a pool of water, but the water is brackish and undrinkable, and they're dying of thirst. So what do they do? They complain to Moses, and Moses talks with God, and God instructs Moses how to MacGyver the situation. And once again, problem solved. They journey on until they can't find any food, and they're literally starving. So they, what do they do? They complain to Moses, and Moses talks with God, and suddenly manna and quail appear. And once again, problem solved. 
And they journey on from there until again they can't find water. And again, they're dying of thirst. And again, what do they do? They complain to Moses. And now we're starting to see the pattern, aren't we? We can see how all of this begins to work every single time. When you have a problem, you complain to Moses. You harangue Moses. You blame Moses. And problem solved. Only Moses has had enough. And Moses is losing his mind. And Moses can't go on like this. And the Bible doesn't say it, but I think it's at this point in the story that every parent can identify with. That moment when you, when you, when you say, don't make me come back there. I'm going to give you something to complain about if you're really, right? And a lot of preachers will, you know, will really be critical about the Hebrews complaining, but you really can't blame them. I mean, for one thing, they've been forced to eat manna three times a day. And manna is like a recycled cardboard pizza box that masquerades as bread, right? And three servings of manna every day. It gets old, but worse, worse than the manna is the thirst. Real human thirst. And humans can go days, even weeks without food. But out in the wilderness, exposed to the elements, you can't go more than a couple days without water. Physical thirst is real. And their complaints are justified. A humanitarian crisis is unfolding. And this is where the story turns into a case study on human nature. And the ways we all so often blame shift instead of claiming our own human agency to change our situation. The people complained to Moses, did you bring us out of Egypt just to let us and our families and our livestock die of thirst? Well, notice that's not really a question. That's more like an indictment. It is your fault, Moses. If we die out here, this one's on you. The people complain to Moses, and it's brutal. So what does Moses do? Moses complains to God. Lord, what am I going to do with these people, he says. Notice that he doesn't refer to them as my people, Lord, your people, Lord. He calls them these people. And these people is just one letter away from those people. And those people is the label we so often use to distance ourselves from people we don't like. We use it to relinquish our relationship and responsibility to them, to shift the blame on them or someone else. We do this a lot in our culture. It is the oldest trick in the book when we can't solve our problems, and we tend to blame others for them. When we feel powerless in the face of our problems, we can't see a way out of our problems. We blame shift, and we scapegoat, and we otherize until finally... God, what am I going to do with these people, turns into God, what are you going to do with those people? And then we wash our hands of our power and our responsibility. There's a story about human nature that out in the wilderness dying of thirst, the people complain to Moses and Moses complains to God until God is tested and put on trial. And then we can all conclude that it's no one's fault but God's alone. In the middle of the last century, 
There was a movement that became known as the death of God movement. It speaks directly to this experience of the Hebrews. After World War I, the the bloodiest, deadliest war in human history, after the Holocaust and Hiroshima with the annihilation of millions of people all at once, the question became, where was God? And how could God allow such evil and devastation to occur? And out of the ashes, the answer for so many was that God simply did not exist. And that God, or at least the possibility of belief in God, died in Auschwitz. It's the age-old question the Hebrews asked in the wilderness. Is the Lord with us or not? But besides God is dead as the answer, there is another response to that question. To the question of where is God today, where was God, there is a profoundly biblical response, and it's found here in our Exodus story. The Hebrews try to test God. They question whether whether the Lord is with them or not, but God will not do for them what they must do for themselves. God will not absolve them of their power or their agency to change their own situation. This cycle of blame shifting, it has to stop. And the people must take responsibility for their lives. They must choose to act. And so God tells Moses, take your leaders to Horeb, and when you get there, you'll find a rock. You are to strike the rock with your staff, and out of the rock, water will flow so that people may drink and live. If that sounds a little odd and implausible, a little supernatural and irrational, if it seems really strange to say that someone could strike a rock and squeeze enough water out of that rock to quench the thirst of thousands of dying people, if that sounds odd, I want you to give yourself permission to lean less into literalism here and more into metaphor. Because this story is not about a rock. It's not even about the water. There's a deeper meaning It's a more enduring message here for all of us. It's a message about what happens when we finally stop blaming others, when we finally stop testing God for the things that we often do to ourselves or for the things that God just simply won't do for us. And then we begin to listen and follow the promptings of God to do for ourselves what we must do if we are ever to become the kind of people We might be. God commands Moses to strike the rock, and maybe the rock is is simply a symbol, a symbol of the power that, that awaits each of us in every moment of our lives. That's the power to act. It's the power to choose, the power to change ourselves, the course of our lives, even change the world. Maybe in the story that the symbol of this power to act and choose, it comes in the form of a rock because, well, like every rock, that power, it cannot actually do anything on its own. Left untouched, untapped, unstruck, it's lifeless and useless to us. That rock needs us to act upon it. And the Hebrews in the wilderness they weren't asking, is the Lord, they were asking, is the Lord with us or not? But, but God says to Moses, there's a bigger question here. 
Are you with me or not? After the ovens of Auschwitz and the horrors of Hiroshima, the secularists and philosophers and some theologians proclaimed the death of God, but there were some thoughtful theologians who turned that question, is the Lord with us or not, back on humanity. And they argued that God is very much alive in this world and is always, always, always asking us that question, are you with me or not? This little group of theologians became known as process theologians, and and they began to offer a more grounded, rational, and biblical vision of power, God's power and your power. And what they said was, there are always three powers at work in your life at every given moment. And that first power is the power of our past, which reminds us that what we've experienced before this present moment right now has made a profound influence and difference in who you are and who you can become. None of us here exist in a vacuum. We didn't just show up. We, we brought with us experiences, and we are the sum of those experiences, even the experiences of the universe. We can't escape our personal history, and we can't escape our shared common history as humans. What's the old phrase, the past is never dead? It's not even over. The past is a part of us. From personal losses and tragedies to wonderful victories, from genocide and and war and transatlantic slave trade, these things, they remain with us and they have an influence on our lives today. The past is never everything, but it is something very powerful. And as hard as we might try in life, we cannot escape our past choices or our past experiences or our traumas or our mistakes, the things that we do and the things that have been done to us. And we take these past experiences into ourselves and into our present experience. What's that book? The body keeps the score. Memory runs deep and physical. And for better or for worse, These past experiences influence who we become and who we are right now. But the power of the past does not determine our future. There's another power at work in our lives, and that's the power of God in every present moment. God who is constantly offering us new possibilities for this moment right now that are unlike anything we've ever seen before like a rock in the wilderness. And God offers these new possibilities to us based on God's intention for your life. What is that intention? It's for your wholeness, for our wholeness, for our well-being, what Jesus called abundant life. And some call that intention God's will, but sometimes the idea of will It implies willfulness. And God never imposes God's will on any of us. We are always, always free to reject God's intention for us. Instead, God's power is one of wooing us, beckoning us toward that divine intention, and offering us a way of dealing with our past 
in a way of creating greater potential for our well-being in the future. God woos us toward the rocket Horeb. And God says, look, right here is a possibility for your well-being. Strike the rock and live if you choose. But not even the power of God is all determinative because there is one more power at play in our lives and that's the power of ourselves. That's the power God gives each of us to determine our present and to influence our future. It's the power that we possess as humans to decide what we will do in this moment and who we will become and how we will go on. And this power of ourselves, it it joins the actual past of our experiences with the possibilities of God's future and and it, it brings it together and calls us to strike the rock. It's the power to choose to become well. Is the Lord with us or not, they said, and that's our question too, isn't it? We ask it. Because life is a road trip. And so often we get stuck, we get detoured, we get lost, and we want sometimes to believe that it's somebody else's problem, it's just not our fault, that it's those people's fault. And that's when God turns the question back on us, reminding us of our power to act, to choose and determine our futures, to work for our well-being, for the well-being of the world. Are you with me or not? Years ago, I, I had one of those road trips that you all have had too. Um, I was presented with a, with a possibility. It was fraught with great risk, but also amazing potential and possibility a new career adventure, if you will. And it would require me to act decisively and I had to choose. And how things would turn out, I didn't know. I only knew that if they didn't turn out well, I couldn't blame anybody else but myself. And I was talking to a friend about it one day. A remarkable friend, I've mentioned him before. A man who lived his life on the streets and in shelters and back on the streets. He would come to my office about once a month and pray for me. He had been a preacher back in the day before he fell on hard times and now he was living in a shelter and it was one of the coolest and most unlikely friendships I have ever had. And one day I confessed to him that I I was really afraid of making the wrong decision here and he said, Pastor, there are no wrong decisions He said, I'm living proof that even what might seem like the wrong turn can still lead to the right place and just look at me, he said, smiling. And I said, Thomas, that might be true, but still, you're actually sleeping in a shelter and I'd really prefer to get to the right place by less inconvenient route. And he laughed. And he said, there's always more than one road to get you where you need to be. You just have to choose a way. And only after you have chosen that way will God open up a new way. And then you just choose again. And it just goes on and on. So stop worrying, Pastor, and just choose and just trust. And just keep your eyes open. And then he lifted up his ancient, calloused hand. 
put it on my shoulder, and he prayed for me. Our takeaways for today, moment by moment, the power of the past, the power of God, and the power of ourselves are always working together. And in every moment, God is asking us, are you with me or not? And only after we have struck the rock can water ever spring forth. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.